Welcome to another episode of Becoming Unfuckwithable with your host, Mindy Harley. Warning, listening to this podcast might cause you to shatter your limited beliefs, recognize your potential, and motivate you to be the best you can be. Other side effects may include, but not limited, to grabbing life by the balls, taking no crap from anyone, becoming an unstoppable force at various aha moments to get you thinking outside the box. Hello and welcome to another episode of Becoming Unfuckwithable. My name is Mindy Harley. And I'm so excited to have you guys on for episode number nine. And today's guest, I've actually known her for a little bit. Back in my Vancouver, British Columbia days, I got the opportunity to meet her and we've bumped shoulders at different events. Um, Most recently, I got to catch up with her at the North American Championships in Pittsburgh, which is currently going on this week. So it's kind of cool that we're doing this interview now. But a little bit about Victoria. She's actually a contributing writer for Muscle Insider magazine. And she's also an instructor and internationally renowned junior scholar completing her doctoral studies at the University of British Columbia. Now, besides all this, she's got an extensive, vast knowledge and special interest in, of course, cultural sport historian, physical culture, medical performance enhancement, and her research has achieved international publication and award. Now, her background in exercise physiology and biomedicine has made an amazing platform for her pioneering work in the critical study of social ethics, hormonal manipulation, and performance-enhancing technologies. Now, she's also the owner and operator of a very successful independent fitness consulting firm. She works with some of the most top-level athletes in the industry and various organizations within the health and fitness industry. Now that's quite a mouthful and it's quite an introduction and I hope you are ready for this episode. We're going to be talking about a little bit of taboo topics. We're going to be talking about steroids. We're going to be talking about SARMs. We're also going to be talking about women's health and training and we're also going to be touching on mental health and depression. So this is a little bit of a full episode. I hope you enjoy it and we're going to get started right now. Okay, so Victoria, I just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast and you know, I've known you for quite some time, but I honestly just wanted to learn more about what you're doing because I mean, I've known you in the fitness industry for I feel like forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Vancouver days. <laughs> yeah, exactly, the Vancouver days, you know, briefly got to see you in Pittsburgh with, you know, we were there for your one your couple of your clients were competing there yeah. as well. So you know, what inspired you to get into your field? Um, a lot of things actually. So I guess just to like kind of like your let your listeners know, I kind of have two different fields. So um, I, my job title is like an academic and fitness consultant. So I kind of see my fields as being the same but different because within both worlds, my my motives are exactly the same. My inspirations are very similar. But I kind of have to, like, do them in a different way, if that makes sense. Yeah. So in academia, um, really for me, it's about creating knowledge. Um, I'm a researcher, so I'm so grateful to be, like, actually in the trenches. Um, book, uh, like, I'm a complete bookworm. I'm looking over at my desk right now, and the amount of books I have just sitting on, like, my to-read pile is ridiculous. Um, and going through data, interviews, like, that's that's my world as a, as a researcher. 
Um, but then I also get to kind of disperse knowledge as well. And so within the fitness industry, that's one of my, my big ways that I can actually get the good knowledge out. I, I will say that um, to people when they ask me um, what exactly I do, I'm like, I'm just trying to fight the good fight. Um, there's so much misinformation in our industry. There's so much um, almost animosity <laughs> towards yeah. different kind of like camps or, or thoughts or um, ideologies that for me, I'm kind of like, I just want people to come together and reflect on the fact that knowledge is constantly moving. It's dynamic. Um, I mean, if there was one way to lose fat, we would all be doing it, but there's not, there's not a one size fits all yet. We still, for some reason, our industry likes to kind of hold on to these very basic and oversimplistic views of the body. Um, and I think for me too, one of the big things, um, that really kind of got me inspired to stay in the fitness industry was that, um, with more time passing, it seems that there's more craziness. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like I, I always reflect back. I'm like, well, frick, like five years ago, it wasn't such a cesspit. Um, 10 years ago, I still like enjoy going to local events. And now it's just such this, this odd wild west situation where you've got just so much, I don't even know, like bad information with, uh, large personalities and egos and, uh, people preying on others' insecurities, and it's just, it's its disgusting, but at the core, I love movement. I love human movement. I love training. Um, I love what it's done with my life. I love how it makes me feel, um, and so that's really one of my main reasons why I stay um, in this world is to try to kind of fight that good fight and get the good information out, and as a female, do it from a different stance than um, many others that are in kind of like the same position as me. Yeah, and I mean, and so you would say that you only, do you only train females then? No, and so actually I don't even coach per se anymore. I think <laughs> that that's a whole big long oh, wow. topic on okay. itself, but yeah. um, I see myself as being um, a consultant. And so yeah. one of the things I started to realize, um, I mean, I, I've been in this world for a really long time and I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, and I've also been really fortunate to be in academia simultaneously, but also within the world of medicine. Um, and I started to see that there was fractures within all three of those worlds. I started to see that there were a lot of very um, similar, I guess, approaches people were taking to how we manage our bodies and how we try to get healthy. Um, and that there's a lot that we can learn from each other that just wasn't happening. So uh, within medicine, people often say that we do the, the Band-Aid approach or the pill approach and that you, you go to your doctor, you're not feeling well, they just kind of give you a pill and send you on your way. And that's a quick fix. Well, in the fitness industry, we do the same shit. Um, you go to your trainer or your coach because you're overweight. They give you just a superficial diet, training program, supplement regime, and, and off you go. It's a very band-aided approach. For me, um, I really truly believe that we have to go deep. We have to almost think of uh, the human body as a as an onion. Uh, there's a lot of layers going on. Um, it's, a, it's an onion actually in a web of a whole bunch of different other onions. There's just so many interactions and relationships between different elements, not only of our physiology, um, but of, of, I mean, the, the cultural landscape we're in, our relationships, our, just our basic background of education or income that really get ignored. And so in order to actually create sustainable change, in order to actually create healthy bodies, how we approach coaching has to be different. Um, because if we keep doing that same approach of just like a training program, here's your diet, here's your supplements, 
it truly is just superficial. It was only going to last so long. The person is probably going to rebound or fuck up along the way. That's going to have dire consequences for their health and their well-being. Um, so for me, coaching kind of, I don't like the name of it. So I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to call myself a consultant. Um, so I really focus my kind of practice on education. Um, and it is about not only like educating about your own health, but about the, the basic kind of ideas and, and methodologies behind certain either um, physiological processes that are happening. So, for example, if a female comes to me and she's got hypothyroidism, well, I'm not going to just say like, hey, yeah, you've got hypothyroidism, go see your GP. Um, or, hey, let's just look at your blood work and go and zoom in on the TSH and T3 like most coaches do, um, who have no idea about biomedical background or don't have training in this, which drives me nuts. Because um, it's a lot more than that. Yeah. There's so many different reasons why somebody can have hypothyroidism. So you really truly do have to peel back the layers. You have to look at all the interactions in order to try to help somebody through and also educate them on how did they get here in the first place and how they're going to get out of there. Um, so if they ever find themselves back in that same position, they have the tools in their own toolbox to help fix themselves. Yeah. Um, I feel like we, I, I joke that there's this notion of, of regulation. We try to regulate people's behaviors by simply just giving, um, giving a simplistic kind of fix yet. It doesn't fix anything and they don't learn anything. So we're not actually educating. Yeah. I try to educate. So yes, I still coach girls, I guess per se or and guys for shows, but I've just yeah. do it in a very kind of different way. Um, because, we got we got to start somewhere, um, and hopefully this type of kind of deeper thought and critical thinking and just information literacy will begin to trickle down. But and that's why I love coming on like podcasts, and I'm so grateful that you asked me on because it's just another platform that I, hopefully I can get people just thinking a little differently. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I mean that's really different too because, like you said, you're just so you know rooted in the education process of it too that I feel that you know they get they get to really understand their bodies a lot more and rather than just, well, I don't know why mm -hmm. I have to do this or I don't know why I'm doing this or I don't know why this mm -hmm. is wrong. You know, now they oh, have yeah. the, the roadmap, you know, to, yeah. to look back on and be like, oh, okay, well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. And like, I, I'm really grateful too because I work with a lot of coaches. Um, I, think, I think over half my consulting um, kind of businesses with, with coaches or educators or even medical practitioners um, because they recognize the whole notion of like, we don't know what to do or we need more information. And I love that for me, the idea of like the, the unknown is why I got into research because I wanted to learn more. Um, so when somebody comes to me, uh, especially if they're a, like a high level coach and they say like, look, like I need, I need your help trying to figure out like say polycystic ovarian syndrome with female fitness comp competitors. I'm like, hell yes. Like let's work on this together. Um, nobody really knows what's going on with that syndrome, but I can give you some tools to help, look at a specific individual and then their specific case and then you can help them kind of achieve whatever it is it might be yeah. so yeah no I'm I'm so blessed I'm so grateful because it is such a it's such a fucked up industry but I get to do some pretty darn cool stuff with it yeah that is pretty cool especially that you are a resource to other coaches and stuff and you know as long as they're coming to you to you know help understand this better rather mm -hmm. than you know trying to like you said, band-aid approach and fix it on their own, you know, yeah. it's, it's such a delicate, you know, situation, especially, and especially with women, especially with women. And you, like, what, what do you think is one of the most overlooked areas, 
like when someone goes to assess, you know, a female, you know, mm. for a competition prep, like what, you know, what frustrates you? <laughs> I, it's funny when I, when I saw this question, I was like, common sense. <laughs> but, I, but I say that about everything. I think that there's not enough kind of actually common sense and asking questions um, related to the specific individual. Um, we think so much, uh, like our, our world really is um, a binary. And so what a binary is, is it's, it's this world of black and white. We try to think of men and women, old and young, skinny and fat. We always create this, this, this juxtaposition or this binary, but that really, it doesn't, it doesn't exist, right? We, we know we have a continuum that there are some people that are, um, let's just say physiologically, they might be a certain age, but cognitively, they might be a lot older or more mature. We know that there are uh, individuals that have sexual organs of um, either, like what's considered to be male or female, but they might actually have a gender or kind of performance in other ways. So it is really, really complicated. Um, yet within the industry, we love our binaries. We like to compartmentalize and love to simplify. So with women, I find one of the biggest things is, is that we do have um, more of a... Um, it's called the academic term is androcentric, but it just means like male dominated or kind of male viewpoint. Yeah. Um, the guides our industry, and that's totally fine. I'm not going to kind of stand up here as a radical feminist and be like, oh, done with men, because that's not the case <laughs> at all. Um, it's just that I recognize that, I mean, realistically, let's look back over the last 100, 150 years of physical culture in the fitness industry, and most of the big cheeses, um, I would say 90% are or more are men. Um, and that's, that's the way it, that's the way it's been. And that's totally cool. I recognize it. And why I recognize it is that that's where we're building our knowledge about how to build the human body from. We're not building our knowledge from, um, like a female perspective or, or a woman's body. Um, early bodybuilding shows were men. The early bodybuilding gurus were men. Um, and really there was only a select few people that were working with women, even, I mean, back in like hundred years ago. 150 years ago is really kind of like the start of physical culture, so I won't go back that far. But yeah. the first female kind of mainstream bodybuilding show wasn't until 1977. That's not that long ago. Um, <laughs> and so, you know what I mean? So we're still getting our knowledge. We're still figuring shit out. Um, and endocrinology is really freaking complex. Mm-hmm. Um, we think of, especially in our industry, we like to go like, well, the only difference between men and women is like, you know, it's their hormones and then people will list off the X, Y, and Z. So I'm going, okay, so no, let's restart that. The only difference between men and women is that there's a whole hell of a lot of factors and it's not just about men and it's not just about women. It's about the individual that you are coaching, whether they are male or female. So that for me is like the very first thing I try to get people to think about is that yes, there's difference. Um, yes, it's okay. We know that there are uh, physiological factors that, uh, especially when it comes to something like menstruation, yep. that's going to be different between a male and a female. Um, but we're not that simple. And we're also not that different than men. I'll never forget, um, John Meadows was one of my, my early, early mentors. This was like back in the days when he was still banking. Um, but I remember he sent me this email because I was just like, slaying his workouts and he was like I don't understand Victoria how you're like still getting through like I think I did 21 weeks of mountain dog training straight um and uh he just said like you've really kind of shown me that you know you are a young female and you're a hell of a lot stronger than any male that I work with like you are crushing those stereotypes 
Um, because ultimately I don't train men and women differently. I look at their physiology, like their physiology differently when I have to get lean, but the actual training programs aren't that different. Um, and that really stayed stuck with me because at that time I was actually in my undergrad doing exercise physiology and I can remember so many profs trying to say like, no, you have to train men and women different. And I go, well, to some extent, but really not, not, we're not that different guys. Um, yes, there are ways like women are kind of more, some women, uh, have a greater affinity for training volume. Some women have a lesser affinity for eating carbs, but it's got to come down to the individual. Um, you can have a fucking workhorse that can do a ridiculous amount of volume and it might be a male. Um, you can have a female that can eat 400 to 700 grams of carbs a day. Um, so we always have to go back to that individual in question. Um, but just so I don't completely kind of throw off all of your listeners, um, when it comes to women, I think we forget how resilient the body is, but also that it's not invincible. And what I mean by that is that um, it really kind of goes back to, I guess, menstruation for me, is that people forget that when a female kind of misses her period or maybe doesn't have one, um, that that's actually not necessarily a good thing and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, women don't have to all have a perfect utopian 28 day period. Um, that's such a myth. It's so embedded though, that people can't kind of stray away from that. At the same time, uh, there's ideas around say body composition and menstruation in our industry that are also myth. Um, it's not just about a female's uh, body composition for her reasons that she might not have a period. Yet you hear time and time again coaches saying shit like that, like, oh, well, my client has such a low body fat that she's she's lost her period. And I'm like, dude, there are so many other reasons than just body fat. Because, for example, you can be 25% body fat and lose your period. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so it is it is kind of like we put so much pressure on the idea of menstruation. We put so much emphasis on it. And I absolutely think that's it's crucial and it's important. But we got to get our facts Right. We got to get our shit straight um, because as it stands right now, I just keep seeing more and more kind of these myths around female menstruation that are being said about me- uh, like males are saying them about the female body, yeah. um, which is why I love what I do because I kind of get to stand up there as a female and be like, dude, when was the last time you had your period? <laughs> uh, well, uh, the literature says, and I'm like, I don't give a shit about what the literature says because first of all, there's so much literature and research on this. Um that you have to actually start looking at who you're training. You have to look at them and then look at them and the physiological processes happening inside their body. Yeah. There's my long ass winded, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And especially still too, talking about, you know, the, the menstrual cycle and everything. What do you Mm -hmm. feel? Because I've, I've seen, you know, literature on this about women, you know, training in accordance to their menstrual cycle, kind of harnessing the power of, you know, higher pain thresholds and you know, mm-hmm. manipulating their workouts to, you know, follow that cycle. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, so it's funny cause I, I first kind of came up. So my, right now I'm doing my doctoral, um, like I'm a doctoral researcher. I'm doing my, my dissertation. Yeah. And one of my chapters is actually on kind of the myths around sport performance and female menstruation. Oh, um, so I'm, I'm very intimately, um, <laughs> knowledgeable about this subject but um again it has to come back to the female in question 
Um, the reason why I don't like that approach that's kind of like that one-size-fits-all change in menstrual cycle is that every female is going to have a different menstrual cycle. There are different hormones that all have together, different physiological processes that have to come together in order to actually have um, a menstrual cycle. Um, menstruation is one of those things that it's incredibly, incredibly a complex process that happens. Um, it also, though, from like a very evolutionary perspective, means that a female is uh, is fertile or she is trying to be fertile. She's trying to be able to make her body in a way that is going to be able to be conducive to making babies. Um, so when we think about sport performance, sometimes our actions can actually work against menstruation, meaning that if you are, say, a power lifter um, and you are trying to get into the strongest shape of your life, um, you have to override certain kind of biofeedback or, or feelings that you have relative to your menstrual cycle. Um, women can probably kind of uh, relate to this a little bit more than the guys, but there are some days, especially between ovulation uh, to actual menses, that you feel like absolute utter shit. Yep. The last thing you want to do <laughs> is go and lift a super heavy weight. Um, and this is common when you have lower levels of progesterone to begin with, which is quite um, quite normative. I hate that word, but it, you see it quite a bit in the athletic population because progesterone is related to cortisol. Yeah. And we know that as athletes, as people that are asking our bodies to perform, um, we are producing cortisol. Um, some cortisol is good. Too much cortisol is bad. Cortisol over time, really bad. Um, but we do have a certain level of kind of a heightened performance required. So we often will suppress our progesterone levels. The lower your progesterone levels are, the more that you kind of will have those days that you feel like pure and utter shit. Um, so it gets really hard if you're, say, doing like, um, I don't know, like a, a wave cycle for training, you have to go in and you have to override what your own body is telling you to do. Whereas there's other kind of uh, ideologies that say, no, train for how you feel. If you feel like shit, um, because you're on day 14 or whatever people use is tracking it, um, then you need to now lay off. I'm of the belief that you have to go like I said, off how you feel, but also just the common sense approach. Um, like if you are a female and the floodgates have opened, I'm sorry, but the last thing you're going to want to do is go to the gym. No matter what somebody says about the theory of that's the best time to, you know, actually go and train because your estrogen is going to be at the lowest point. Um, if, no, if you don't feel it, don't go. Mm -hmm. um, nobody can force you into that. Physiologically it has to come in sync with the psychology, the sociology, and bottom line, what is even more important than all of that mumbo-jumbo is just how you feel. Um, I think we have to start learning our bodies, and that's why I kind of take this more education approach, is that I try to educate women on, like, okay, when, you're, when you are, like, floodgates have opened, I don't care what your blood work says at that point. Um, it might say that you should be feeling great, but if you feel like shit, that's your takeaway message. Um, blood work or heart rate or even just a calendar that's trying to track you it's only a method to help you better understand your body. Um, and once you start kind of harnessing that, start learning for yourself. Check out your own vaginal discharge. Don't be afraid to keep notes on that. That's going to be a hell of a lot more powerful than some app that you download. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I guess going kind of back to your question, though, is that, yes, some research has shown that there are a potential, and I'm going to huge air quote that one, there's a potential that sport performance may be affected by menstrual rhythms. 
um, the range of different kind of aspects happening within that, that, that idea is vast. We have from uh, brain function to mood to arousal, cognition. I mean, there's cardiovascular changes that can happen in some women from, uh, I mean, just a, a change to your nervous system, to your actual heart rate rhythm, something called EPOC, which is your uh, ability for your kind of heart rate to come down after really intense exercise. Um, there's core temperature changes. There's, uh, I mean, substrate, you actually metabolize your foods uh, potentially differently. There's strength uh, changes are really related to that. There's a response to certain um, actual ergogenic aids. So in certain types of your time of your period, if you're going to be more nervous, sensitive, your nervous system is going to be more sensitive, you're going to be a lot more um, sensitive to caffeine or stimulants. Yeah. Therefore, some people can get a really good workout around that kind of point in their period. But these are really hard for the average individual to have any fucking idea what's going on inside their body. The research that's been done tracks women with masses amounts of laboratory equipment to be able to actually kind of get these these ratings at a very kind of cellular level. Yeah. Um, whereas most of us, we can read a study that says, uh, yes, if you have a 28-day perfect cycle that your hormones follow the normative um, like averages in terms of like how your estrogen trajectory is, you could have the potential to have a greater cardiovascular advantage if you train between X day and Y day. Um, but that's not the case. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where for me, I'm kind of like, well, that's a cute idea, but it's not realistic. Um, I mean, if you've had a really bad day at work, some people want to train, some people don't. Yeah. Um, if you've had a really shitty sleep, some people try to go into what I call cognitive overload, where you actually force yourself to go and train, where other people will just chill and hit it harder the next day. So that it all comes down to like the, the, the individual's body. Um, and I think the other thing kind of to, to get to, to get through to people is just that menstruation, like I said, it is so complicated. There are so many different things. And in our world in particular, like outside of that more like sport performance in, in fitness and bodybuilding, it gets even more fucked up because we're manipulating so many variables simultaneously to try to push the body to a place that it might not necessarily want to go mm -hmm. um, from a physiological standpoint. So very low levels of lean tissue mass, very high levels of muscle mass. We are having to manipulate everything to get there. And menstruation is a, it's a sum of all parts. So when we start to manipulate something like diet, it is going to have an effect on our menstrual cycle. When we do uh, additional cardio, it's going to have an effect on our menstrual cycle. Now, does this mean that you're going to lose your period? Maybe, maybe not. Um, at the end of the day, it, it's where your hormones are personally um, and kind of your own normal normative average. Um, but we throw drugs into the mix and it's, it fucks up things even more. Yeah. So again, like male coaches, female coaches, listeners, whoever actually is going to be paying attention to my mumble here. Um, it's complex. So try to learn what actually happens on a physiological level with menstruation and apply that to the individual client. Yeah. Big time. And I know for like, even for me, like I've been, you know, pretty low uh, body fat and everything. I, all throughout my preps, like, I've never had that problem. Like, I've never lost yeah. my period. In fact, it's usually yeah. come up. Unfortunately, my some of my shows have been bad timing where it's come up and it's like, ah, uh, yeah. you yeah. know, like, today of all days, really? 
Oh, and that's honestly, Mindy, that is so, so common. Yeah. Um, especially if somebody tapers their training down into a show and starts to increase food during that last week. Yeah. From like physiologically, it makes total sense. You've been fighting against your body in terms of like the fight or flight mode. Mm-hmm. So you're at stress. So even though your period might not be, um, like regular, like a lot of girls will be like, well, it's kind of regular. It's usually plus or minus a couple days, or maybe they haven't even had it for six months. Yeah. I, I cannot tell you how many women I know that have their period arrive either the day of the show or the day before the show. And it's because they've slowed down enough. Um, they've given them, give themselves enough nutrition that their body's like, Hey, I can make babies again. Yeah. Um, Woo-hoo, and so. yeah, it's, it's why when I used to like be at shows uh, more often, I would always have like a gauntlet of, of feminine supplies because nobody remembers to bring that on the day of the show. Um, uh, because especially the noobs don't think that that would ever happen when they're at like quote unquote, that low of body composition yeah um so i remember like the days when we see shows back at like centennial theater in north van i would just have this like stockpile in my purse um <laughs> because male coaches don't have any freaking idea with that um so yeah no it's uh, our bodies are they're beautiful they're challenging they're so resilient but they're not invincible yeah no and i, I think i think you start to feel you know a certain way too you start to feel that you are invincible you know, mm-hmm. when you, you know, you start doing that intense training, you know, your, your body is you know, looking ripped and shredded and you're walking around like, like a virtual superhero, mm-hmm. but you know, it's just such a delicate, <laughs> it's a delicate flower, but. Oh, absolutely. And that goes for men and women. Like so many people, I call it like that, the invincibility complex and that, um, as you get more in shape, you become more what you think is uh, invincible, invincible to any health issues invincible to any kind of um injuries happening um muscle i can't even speak this morning muscle tears um yeah. ligament issues it's just you've got you're like i look so freaking good that i am on top of my physical world i am like totally winning at this and then that's when you actually start to see breakdown because they're not taking care of their bodies they're not looking at the um the interactions of certain systems they're not actually thinking about that because they're so high on the way that they look yeah and i think that's definitely i think that's definitely you know amounted into something a little bit of a bigger beast too especially when you start adding steroids into the mix as well Mm -hmm. and you know people that you know that do use them and you know there's you know people are going to use them people you know they're they're out there and everything but for me i always think because you know there's a lot of people, you know, that get into bodybuilding, you know, because of, you know, some, some problem or a breakup or, you know, it helps them feel good. They start feeling good. They start looking better. But I think there's a lot of, you know, work on the inside, you know, as far as, you know, with their mental health, if they were suffering from depression, you know, we see a lot of women who were, you know, had bad body images get into, you know, fitness shows and stuff, but it's, it's still a band-aid approach. Do you think, but I'm curious because I kind of feel like there's a big connection between steroid abuse and, you know, depression and mental health. The same way that we see, you know, a lot of actors that, you know, have, we found out that, you know, they're depressed or suffering from depression and mental health. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they die at the hands of a, you know, cocktail mix of drugs that, mm-hmm. you know, they've been using. What are what are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Um I love talking about the, the giant elephant in the room. Um, <laughs> Me <'cause>, too. <laughs> yeah, because in the last 
in the last couple months, in the last couple years, we have seen so many um, different heartache. I am not pro nor con anabolic androgenic steroids. I am I'm neutral. I am pro education. Yes. Um, they are not some ravenous beast that uh, pop culture has made them out to be. Um, because ultimately they have been used in clinical practice since 1937. If something has been used in clinical practice since 1937, let me tell you, they're not that bad. Um, and that is a big thing that the uh, kind of pop culture world doesn't actually know or recognize, um, which is why one of the reasons actually why I got into my, my research um, because there are some very, very positive things, um, that can happen when you do use, uh, anabolic steroids in clinical settings under, um, certain kind of, when you're controlling certain variables. Um, now I personally think that the connection between steroid use and me mental health is a lot bigger than we allow ourselves to see. Um, and the reason why I say this is that I like to look at each of the different components yeah, on their own first. So um, I'll, I'll start with depression and mental health issues. So um, as, a, as a functional practitioner, uh, I truly believe that depression and mental health is a dysfunction at some level within the body. Um, this can be from a hormonal imbalance, which when we kind of think about that in conjunction with steroids, it only makes sense. We're taking a steroid which is a hormone, which is going to cause an imbalance of other hormones within our bodies. But they can also be caused by things like um, a neurotransmitter deficiency or imbalance. It can be caused by lower levels of certain vitamins or deficiencies in minerals like um, vitamin B6, B12, um, I mean, even zinc. Uh, it can be as a response to food sensitivities, food allergies, um, gut issues like bacterial and yeast overgrowth, parasites, SIBO, um, low, uh, pardon me, low thyroid levels, so hypothyroidism, uh, systemic, system, oh my goodness, I can't talk this morning, systemic inflammation, there we go, um, which means, I mean, that's, systemic inflammation is just, it's a host of a whole bunch of things, um, from like high, having high levels of blood pressure to high levels of cholesterol to um, glucose uh, metabolism, just kind of dysbiosis or just dysregulation. Um, even something like nervous system function. Um, and I, and I joke when I talk to, um, when I'm doing seminars on this one, that when we think about something like constipation, which most people, um, in a room when I'm giving a seminar has experienced at some point in their life, um, I say to them, like, how do you feel when you're constipated? You're not feeling on top of the world. You're feeling literally bogged down with shit. And you actually get a nervous system response when you have constipation that creates anxiety it creates nervousness and actually creates for some people um, a very edgy, edgy attitude because their body has this toxic waste in it that they want to get out. It's not a natural thing to hold on to your poop. Yeah. So when we think about it in just that basic, basic sense, there are so many different things that can be um, that under root of, of uh, mental health. So I like to look at, let's figure out and identify like what, what's going on here. Um, what's at the cause of this? If it's a, a neurotransmitter, um, which is more of like, that's kind of the, the biomedical major thing that they look at. So when we think of um, most kind of mainstream medicine talking about depression, they talk about neurotransmitters and then they try to treat it through the use of antidepressants. 
but um, antidepressants usually work on the actual neurotransmitters, which are these little chemical messengers that facilitate communication between your brain and some cells, um, different cells in different parts of the body. Um, and so usually um, an antidepressant targets either your serotonin, your dopamine or norepinephrine, or your GABA. And the reason why I kind of wanted to bring these three up is that we can think about in our industry in particular that people are taking either supplements or neurotropics that are influencing serotonin, dopamine, or GABA. Mm -hmm. They're essentially self-medicating themselves without often realizing the serious effect that that can have on their mental health, whether that's positive or negative. Because not everybody is going to respond to something like GABA in a positive way. Um, people, there's actually a, a great pop, kind of percentage of the population that GABA can make them have manic episodes. It can make them have anxiety. Um, but we don't think about that when it comes down to a sports supplement. We only attach those ideas to things like steroids um, because yeah. steroids are the ones that have the bad rap. Um, and I think right now, especially with this growing trend of neurotropics, I, um, I find it scary. I find it a little bit terrifying that people are so willing and open to um, manipulating their their cognitive function without actually thinking about it, not only in like a, a bigger perspective, but also asking themselves that, like, why am I upset in the first place? <laughs> why am I anxious in the first place? What do I need to do to kind of get to the bottom of this and, and actually provide a, a real long-term and sustainable solution? Um, there are some people out there that, and, and myself included, I'm totally open to talk about mental health stuff because I, I see a psychiatrist regularly. It, it's something that has helped me greatly. Um, I had an eating disorder growing up, um, and then I went through some really shitty, shitty health stuff. So um, I find that for me personally, speaking to an external source who understands also physiology has been a great, great ally to have. Um, so we are always kind of having to think about the proper method for ourselves, be open to other methods outside of the drug or pharmaceutical world. And also just like I say to people, don't fuck with your hormones without having proper medical kind of allies. Don't fuck with your brain chemistry without having proper medical allies. Um, because it is a lot scarier than we kind of allow ourselves to think. Um, I think another one too, that people forget even is like with, um, with the foods we eat, food is so powerful. It is so, so powerful for the ways our body is functioning, but also for how we uh, digest food, how we um, have certain minerals in our bodies or don't have certain minerals in our bodies, um, even the way we, we actually digest food. Like, so um, hydrochloric acid in the stomach digests food. If you have a deficiency of hydrochloric acid, you're going to be more prone to depression and anxiety because um, low, you've actually got um, I won't get into too much biochemistry here, but uh, HCL triggers a digestive response um, that when you have a malfunction in this, it actually can lead inadvertently to low neurotransmitters, which then will lead to depression and anxiety. But again, in bodybuilding, you don't think about this shit. And so you've got people that are eating, say, surplus of four or 5,000 calories a day. Their digestion is completely fucked. Yeah. Um, they're not rotating their foods. They're not aware of um, food allergies or insensitivities. Um, and they've got that going on and then they add steroids into the mix. So that's where I'm like, okay, the, see what I see what I yeah, mean now, yeah. how I, you kind of have to divide it up. 
Yeah. Um, because ultimately we know hormones cause, um, if, if you take an, an exogenous or external hormone, it's going to influence your endogenous or internal hormones. Um, we know that, <laughs> yeah. right? It's just, it's one plus one equals two. We know there's something going on inside the body. Um, whether though this is testosterone, whether this is, um, an anti estrogen, whether this is a, um, thyroid or estrogen, let's think about birth control. The number one side effect associated with birth control is, is often mental health issues. Yeah. So, it, yes, absolutely. When you use some type of hormone, if it's causing a dysfunction or imbalance inside your body, you will probably have some type of depression. Yeah. Now, if you're low though in that hormone and you add it in to create more of a, a balance point personal to your body, you're going to feel like a million bucks because you were low in that hormone and now you're topped up. Yeah. So yeah, it is, it is quite complicated. I think I had to laugh. I was in the, in my uh, research lab on Monday and I got this book on my desk from one of my, uh, one of my research assistants and it said, uh, she was like, I found this in the library. I thought you would, I thought you would laugh. And it, literally the book was called, um, Tesso Rage. Oh. And it was, uh, all these mental, it was, uh, it was a psychology book, but it was uh, all these, uh, kind of case studies of all these mental, uh, health, um, I don't, they're more of like a, a personal narrative study. So when somebody looks at only one individual of mm. uh, a bunch of people that were quote unquote abusing steroids um, and making a case of why testosterone is linked to rage. But I'm like, by golly, you're only looking at one factor of these group of individuals. Yeah. Um, so no, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, frick, it's complicated too. It's complicated. Everything is complicated. Everything is complicated. <laughs> it's just all compound. And it, that's funny too, like, especially with the, um, and you mentioned too, with the birth control. And that was one yeah. thing I noticed for myself, cause I was on it for such a long time Yeah. and I went off of it for whatever reason, I think just because for competing or something, I was like, well, mm -hmm. I'm just going to get off this. Mm -hmm. And then. I was like, okay, well, then I'll, I'll get back on it. When I went back on it, I was like, who is in my head? Mm -hmm. I was like, mm -hmm. what the hell? Oh, exactly. <laughs> and, that, and, and that's where, too, like, post, um, like, I, I always, I mean, we have these certain terms in our industry, like PCT, like post-cycle therapy. But I yeah. say to people, it's actually, in my opinion, it's post-competition therapies um, because there's a lot that should go into that post-competition time. Um, I mean, just thinking about women, um, if a female is taking, uh, let's say androgens and she's taking an anti-estrogen and she's taking a thyroid, um, and also maybe a stimulant like clombuterol in conjunction with training her ass off, mm -hmm. um, being on a very restrictive diet and incredibly goal orientated, that goal orientation is super key in this, um, in depression as well. But, um, you are creating this kind of massive storm, this, this tornado that is ripping through your body during contest prep. And then all of a sudden the day of the show is over and it's like your body internally is in absolute disarray. Yeah. Um, it is like a tornado that has just passed through your body. It's a vortex. It sucks everything in, even like your relationships and, you know, things yeah. you never thought would be affected by prep. And you're standing there on a Sunday after a show and you're in the way you're, you're, you just, you pass the, the storm and you're going, well, fuck, like now what? And most people's response to that is, I mean, for, number one is they want food. 
um, because they've been in like this starvation mode for so long, and also that they've kind of dulled certain responses in their body through kind of having starvation. I won't get into that, but um, there are certain um, physiological properties we need to actually make ourselves feel better with food. Um, and so they start to eat, and they go off their drugs cold turkey. Um, and so let's think about the hormones. If you are just on something for, say, 16 weeks and you go off cold turkey, your hormones are going to be pretty fucked up. Even if you taper off, your hormones are probably still going to be pretty fucked up. So one of the things that I usually see in women is that their um, progesterone is super low. Um, if they've been an asshole and used a really kind of hard, hard uh, anti-estrogen, their estrogen is completely tanked. So their estrogen-progesterone ratio is just it's non-existent. Um, their androgen levels are incredibly high. They've also created a insulin resistance because often they're cutting their carbs out. Um, so when they start eating foods, their body, their pancreas is going like, what the fuck is this? I need to create more insulin, insulin, insulin. Um, and a lot of times in women, we actually see a relationship between androgen. Um, so hyperandrogens are high levels of androgens and insulin resistance. So you already have insulin resistance going on. Um, and then with uh, there is kind of more slowly more research kind of being done on this within um, the breast cancer lit, but the difference between uh, actually shutting down your estrogen production versus um, just kind of stopping your receptor sites from, from being able to, to grasp onto it. So again, depending on what type of anti-estrogen they use, they might stop that drug and like the estrogen floodgates open yeah. and they go, hallelujah. And so now your body's getting flooded with estrogen, um, which we all probably females if you've been on birth control um, in a controlled environment you yeah. know that when you were on that last week of the pill when estrogen was the highest that is when your estrogen rate was also the highest so <laughs> you're flooding yourself full of hormones that haven't been produced from, in a while you're creating this just massive massive state of imbalance just hormonally and I haven't even got to the the uh, digestion I haven't got to the thyroid I haven't got to any of those I'm only talking about our sex hormones here um, that, yeah, you're going to have some pretty fucked up mental health feelings. You're going to be feeling that, uh, I mean, you're not going to be happy. You are not going to be happy camper. Let's just say that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like <laughs> we need to talk about this stuff because there are ways that you can kind of ease through this process a lot better. Um, if you understand what is happening physiologically inside your body, we cannot, um, like humans cannot control our bodies. If we could, I think we'd be walking around absolutely all like ripped, healthy, with zero uh, mental health or physiological health issues, and we'd be living a, a lot long and um, vital life. You know what I mean? So, yeah. but we can't control what's happening. So, what I always say to people is that stop trying to control and start trying to manage. Know that your sex hormones are going to be fucked up for probably a while. So let's look at the things that influence our sex hormones. We know food influences. We know training influences. We know that um, extra personal factors, so uh, relationships, hobbies, they all affect how our bodies function. So let's focus on the things we can control for now um, to hopefully better manage and ease your hormones into a state of personal normalcy. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, especially for you know, competitors, when they, it's kind of like this at all costs. You know, yeah. they, they get the checklist. Oh, okay, I'm going to need to take this. I'm going to take this. And yeah. who, who knows? You know, T3s, plan, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. Take it and supplements and, and stimulants and, yeah. you know, the, the more restrictive diet and the, you know, hardcore training. And, mm -hmm. yeah, you really don't 
and depending on who your coach is, you know, yeah, there's, you know, there's smart ones out there, but there's for every smart one, there is, you know, five uneducated, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, coaches out there. So I mean, the, the luck of the draw is pretty shitty with uh, yeah. who you're going to get as your coach. And you just, yeah, you're, you're left, you know, high and dry at the end of, at the end of prep at after 12 weeks, 16 weeks mm-hmm. of being mm-hmm. like this. And, you know, they don't have a clue what to do. You don't have a clue what to do. And yeah. Soon enough, maybe it tapers out long enough, and then you start the the whole thing over again. Maybe in five weeks later. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, and that's one of the worst things you can do. Is that a lot of times people don't take the time to let their bodies stabilize. Mm-hmm. Um, and like some people's bodies will never be what quote unquote stable. Um, the body every every single day we wake up and we have a new body. Um, physiologically, our bodies are always changing. It's a very dynamic environment. Um, and especially if somebody has really kind of manipulated their hormones, it might take an incredibly long time for your physiological functions to come back to your own sense of normalcy. And that might be something new for you. So it's really learning your body. Um, biofeedback is my kind of one of my, one of my mantras I teach people on that is learning to recognize the, the, the signs. So how is your digestion? Are you pooping? How often? What does it smell like? What's the consistency? These are really important things as much as they are kind of gruesome and taboo um, to help you understand what's happening within your body. Um, looking at your uh, like menstrual kind of just cycle as a whole, not just when your period is, but hey, ovulation. Was it bad? Was it brutal? Do you have discharge? Um, do you have really bad cramps? Uh, what, how's your hair growth? Not only uh, during an everyday kind of in your mind every day, but um, do you notice that it might increase now and again? Well, if it increases, usually that's related to your, your menstrual cycle. Um, there is something called a ovulation in women, which is when you don't actually have a menses, but you have everything else. So you'll have ovulation. You'll kind of have all these processes and you'll be like, oh, it's good. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And then it just never comes. Um, so your body is trying to, to get function back, but a lot of coaches will just go ask like, well, when was your last period? They're not asking you for the all the other amazing information that can really, really help um, manage your, your hormone environment a lot better. Um, so, yeah, you know, it is it is scary. And I think, like, there's a lot that – and like, this is why when you ask about, like, why it would inspire me to get into the field. Like, this is it. This is really yeah. trying to build, build that bridge between the industry and academia. Um, it's trying to have a two-way conversation, though, because, unfortunately, academia kind of sees bodybuilders as this, like, misfit population – um, <laughs> because of, because of mental health, because of drug yeah. use, um, because of this heightened, uh, sense of like, uh, competitiveness, um, and also what they consider to be, um, wanting to be not normative. So we, we need to build that bridge. We need to kind of stop having stigmas on either side because there's also within bodybuilder building this idea of either they know more than doctors, um, or that, uh, we have to do exactly what research is telling us to do. I call them like, it's, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, this is your, this is your evidence-based medicine people versus your bro scientists. Yeah. And some days I feel like I'm stuck in the middle. Um, and I'm trying to like wave the white flag and be like, shut the fuck up. Both of you start actually listening to each other because evidence-based medicine is, is got its huge amount of flaws to it. And personal and practical application also has a huge amount of flaws, but guess what? They both have benefits too. Mm-hmm. So we need to marry them. We need to bring them together because that's how we're going to be able to create sustainable, healthy bodies. Yeah, for the long run. 
<laughs> not yeah. just uh, not just look good on stage for you know a day. Yeah, well, yeah. a lot of that stuff like it comes down to like how our I think how the bodybuilding world has has changed and um, like I have so I teach a bunch of classes. One of the classes I teach is actually um, called it's a grad class. It's on gender and the body, um, and I have to do a, a class on muscle, pretty much the muscularization of the body. And it's funny because I have to explain to a bunch of people that aren't in bodybuilding what bodybuilding is, which is, honestly, guys, it is, from an academic standpoint, probably one of the hardest things I have to do um, on a day-to-day. <laughs> but really, it's I have to explain to people that there is there is the art of bodybuilding. And I say that as, like, body space building. Um, this is you trying to build your body personally, the best body that you want to build to your own kind of ideas of what is healthy, what looks good, what functions, and you're doing it for yourself. Whether you compete or not is a different story, but that's the art of bodybuilding. Then there's the sport, and the sport is the competitive world, and this is bodybuilding all one word. And these are often people that don't always have body space building as their philosophical kind of groundings, that they're not necessarily building the body that they even like, (laughs) that they even enjoy to look like, that they have to suffer or go through hell to be able to get into the shape that they, that's required of them to be able to excel at the level that they compete at. And there's nothing wrong with chasing goals. There's nothing wrong with wanting to achieve that, but we really do have to recognize that these are two different things and you don't have to be on stage to be a body space builder. And that when you're bodybuilding and you're a competitive um, athlete, you should really have that, that underlying idea of, personality it is about you it is about you trying to create your own body and create it in a way that is for you and then you do that and you step up on stage and you might excel at it you might come last place but it doesn't matter then because it's for you yeah that actual like it's like it's very it's very philosophical but I think we are missing that in our, our industry right now and that's one of the reasons why we are creating so much dysfunction people don't fall in love with training they do not fall in love with the weights first yeah they do not enjoy what they're eating or what they're doing first and they sign up um to a gym and a year later they're standing on stage they have not taken the time to actually build their body yeah yeah i mean naturally you know to to build a good foundation and a base and you know it's it's the thing to do jump jump into a gym or you know or all of a sudden before you know it you know they're wanting to do a show Mm -hmm. and I don't know I just I think I mean it's a great it can be a great bucket list depending on your views but then it's like then you step on stage and then do you get hooked you want to do it again and again Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then you know you've lost like your core reasons of why you even started this journey you know you lost your why and it's just a big shit storm after that and before you know it you're saying well the judges told me I need to have bigger delts and a tinier waist and you know I've got Mm -hmm. a bring down my quads and all this kind of yeah. stuff so it's like where does it and then it's like well then don't get into the sport of bodybuilding then but then yeah, it's like, yeah you, you exactly. almost you almost get lost like that tornado you almost get swept into it and it's like well <laughs> oh absolutely and i say to people like actually one of my my seminars i, I do on kind of post-competition health is um i have this one picture of a single tornado um, and then I have the next slide is actually a picture of multiple tornadoes. And so I say to people that there are individuals out there that they're, they're not even, they haven't even recovered from the first tornado. And there's two other on, others on the horizon. There's two other shows that are on the horizon. 
that they haven't even actually given themselves the time to stop, mm-hmm. figure out what the fuck just happened before they have to prepare for the next tornado. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is incredibly hazardous and toxic. Now, if you're somebody that you're you're freaking down in your tornado cellar and you're chilling and you're completely safe down there and you're like, hey, there's chaos going on, but I know when I come out of this tornado cellar, I'm going to be a-okay because I've done what I need to do with my foundations first. Yeah. Um, then, yeah, you can do a bunch of shows in a year. You can do a bunch of shows back to back. But for the vast majority of people, especially the women and men, I'm going to say that I work with at a very elite level. It's not until their second or third pro show that they sit there and they go like, what the fuck have I done? Yeah. Because that road from amateur to pro has been so hard so fast and they have not even taken a second to look back and realize what it took to get there. Um, That then by that third or fourth pro show, they feel like shit, their body's not responding. um, And they're, they're contacting me going like, can you fix me in 16 weeks? And I'm like, uh, yeah, nope. (laughs) <laughs> I can't. Uh, it's probably going to take a hell of a lot longer. I mean, you might be lucky. You might. Be, it might be a very simple thing that has to be kind of manipulated with your physiological function. Um, but for most people, it's, you got to take some time to build the foundations because you never even did that in the first place. Yeah. Um, a, a house that has a proper foundation and that is built meticulously and methodically with the idea that the tornado is coming is going to be a hell of a lot more likely to survive the tornado than one that has just been slapped together and the foundation is broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is... You just... Yeah, you totally nailed it with that. <laughs> and a lot of people, yeah, they're just going up there with shitty shitty foundations and scaffolding and... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, like, so my, my boyfriend's a building inspector, a uh, home inspector, so um, I hear about... It's, it's so funny, because he'll come home and he'll be like... He'll do an inspection and he'll, he'll see this house that has just had the facade put on, as he calls it. Like, he's like, why the hell would they put granite counters in when the foundation is cracked? (laughs) And I'm like, fuck, that's bodybuilding. (laughs) Like, you get people that try to put this facade on, and they don't have function. Um, And for me, like, I guess one of my other mantras, uh, guys, I have a lot of them, um, is when there is function, form will follow. So your physical form, the way you look. When you don't have function you won't have form or you won't have form that's sustainable. Yeah. You have to have your physiological, social, cultural, uh, spiritual functions in place for you to have a sustainable form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They all have to be there. And so many people, they don't. Yeah. And it's always going to be changing. You're always going to be kind of reassessing and rebuilding your form and trying to make it better. And that's cool. As long as you go back to your function. Yeah figure out your function and your function is going to change all the time. That's for me where the idea of management comes in because balance is some utopian bliss. You balance does not exist. Um, (laughs) In order to build a body, guess what? You are not going to be fucking balanced Mm -mm. um, because you are gunning for a goal. Now, most of us, at least I think on my side of the fence, that's kind of um, has had their, had the enlightenment of bodybuilding and realized all these other ins and outs of it is, um, you manage your variables. If you want to get lean, you know something's going to have to give. So you have to manage it. Yeah. Yeah, management is key. Yeah, and I think and balance, everyone else is balanced. No one's balanced looks the same, you know. No, no, and no, nobody's balanced. That's the, that's the yeah. big, like, I mean, with even with hormones, I get so many people that come to me going, like, women in particular, like, I just want my hormones to be balanced. So I was like, well, 
do you have a menstrual cycle? Yeah. And I'm like, guess what? Your hormones aren't balanced. Because in order for you to have a menstrual cycle, you're going to have to have highs and lows of hormones, which means that's not balanced. <laughs> yeah. So we got to kind of like change, yeah. change the way we look at things. Yeah. You know, they just don't, they, yeah, they just, yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah. They want, I want balanced hormones. Well, no, actually, um, they're not supposed to be like, do you want, mm-hmm. do you want a menstrual cycle? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Do you want a state of being, a state of balance is, uh, is post-menopause. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't want to think about and, that yet. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's when you're tanked. Yeah. Right. You are tanked in every sense of the way and you're going to feel like shit. So, I mean, the body needs to have ebb and flow. It needs to have highs and lows. But it's learning how to manage those highs and lows. And it's also learning how to recognize, like, I mean, I mean, even something like PMS. Like, women say to me, like, oh, I have the worst PMS. And I'm like, well, yeah, there's ways to, to manage it. But if you're, if you're somebody that has always had PMS since your first, first periods, mm-hmm. you're probably an individual that just, that is your kind of physiological blueprint, now, we can look at that blueprint in a different way. Um, we can put certain kind of coping mechanisms in place, whether that's like cognitive ones or, or psychological ones, so you kind of understand how to not freak out when your, your estrogen is really high. Um, if you've got a really big imbalance between your estrogen and your progesterone, we can try to manipulate that because it's a, it's a ratio that exists between your estrogen and progesterone levels. We can kind of manipulate other factors to try to bring that a little bit more um, to a, a comfortable ratio. But at some point in time, you have to recognize that when your hormones are dancing, like they do when you are having a menstrual cycle, there's going to be feelings of highs and lows throughout the month. Yeah. It's just like you go through a very traumatic event, you're probably not going to wake up the next day feeling like sunshine and rainbows. Yeah. Um, It's the same kind of idea that we have a certain response that happens. We have a trigger. We have a response. Um, you know, and triggers and, you know, the, the trigger and the response to, you know, it's, I know you've talked about this topic as well, but I don't think a lot of my reader or readers, geez, I'm thinking on my blog, my podcast. So, uh, I don't think a lot of my listeners, um, would, uh, quite be privy to some of the, this information here. Mm-hmm. And especially in the States, um, you know, my husband and I, we go into, you know, some, stores, retail stores and stuff. And we see, you know, the other, the other, um, <laughs> the other product that has this a little bit of a facade, it's, um, we really see a lot of SARMs in stores here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm wondering if they're, they're supposed to be illegal, <laughs> aren't they? Um, yes, they are. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, why, why do you think it's, you know, let's, let's talk about these. Why do you think it's so easy for them to get into retail? And, that's, I really want to educate some of my readers with like the, here I go again with the readers. Apparently it's morning, uh, not a good time. Yeah, either. It's, it's, a, um, it's a Sunday morning. It's a Sunday, <laughs> Sunday morning. So, um, for my listeners, you know, what are some of the risks with these? You know, are they, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I just kind of feel like they're, they're riskier than steroids to be honest. They're like mm-hmm. a Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fuck, our whole, this is where my whole Wild West analogy comes back, <laughs> um, because it is, it is a Wild West out there. So I think, to just kind of go to your first kind of question here, was like, how, why is it so easy for them to kind of get into, get into retail, even though it is, it is illegal? Um, so the supplement industry is gargantuan. It is absolutely, epically massive. So um, 
one of my, like, I use this statistic when I, uh, in one of my classes, but, um, so for listeners that don't know, the supplement industry by 2019, so not 20 years from now, uh, is estimated to be grossing $37.7 billion. That is epic. That industry, um, I mean, when the recession happened, 2008, um, the supplement industry did not get touched. That is impressive to have that much hold on people's pocketbooks. Yeah. So there is a lot of money to be made in the supplement industry. And I think that people um, are so eager to capitalize on that, that they're willing to do it at any way they can, even if it means bending the law uh, and having really no ethics in their practice. So, that's kind of, I guess, my first part of my answer is that there, even if laws exist, there will be people that are willing to bend in order to make a buck. Um, morals come second, money comes first kind of notion. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, too, is that people try to create, um, like with supplements, uh, I call them like the truth claims. Um, so these are the claims that, I mean, fuck, like, Supplements are supplements. They're meant to supplement your, your yeah. diet, your training, and everything else. They're not, they're not magic. Um, they do, though, there are some supplements that are a lot, uh, have a greater affinity. It actually has some type of dramatic change within your body or within your mind. There are others that are nothing more than snake oil. Yeah. Uh, but people try to put these truth claims on anything they can. Now, one way that um, I've seen with kind of like the SARMs, even pro-hormones back in the day, was that people would start to... Um, to mix them or use like adulterated supplements, mix them into them um, because it, they felt that they could create a better product that would have better truth claims associated with them. So they would boost their product, say this can build um, 10 pounds of lean muscle mass in one month because they felt that what they were boosting the product with actually would do that um, a lot more than say, uh, let's just use a very stupid example, but here's a bottle of Tribulus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm going to put, say that, that it can boost your muscle by 10% in one month. Uh, I know it's complete bullshit. So I'm going to put a little bit of a SARM in it. And I'm actually going to know that in my heart, it's going to have such a better effect and ability to do that. Um, which means that people are going to buy it and it's going to work better. So people are going to buy it again and again and again. And they're going to tell all their friends about it. And I'm going to make millions even though the product that they actually boosted it with might not do anything but harm the consumer, um, which is really the case with, um, with, with SARMs. Um, I think also to, <clears throat> pardon me, just to kind of clarify. So a SARM is a selective androgen receptor modulator. Um, the chemical structure of a SARM is very different than that of a steroid. So a steroid is a cholesterol molecule. Um, the reason why there's different types of anabolic compounds is because that cholesterol molecule, molecule gets uh, manipulated in little tiny ways, but it still always is going to be that cholesterol molecule. Now, a SARM, it's a completely different scaffolding. It looks totally different. And there are an infinite amount of possibilities and manipulations of that SARM molecule. Science doesn't know every single possibility. It's like, um, uh, think of it as this massive Rubik's Cube. Science might only know six of the Rubik's Cube combinations, Whereas uh, other type of pharmacists or, or chemists have figured out ones that science, um, WADA, for example, World Anti-Doping Agency, doesn't recognize yet. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So they'll throw these into their into their products thinking, you know what, I can't get caught because the people that are going to catch me don't even know what I'm putting in this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like this invincibility uh, cloak that they feel that they have when they use arms because there are just so much um, ambiguity in the actual like the, the structure itself. Um, so uh, again, kind of, I guess, a little bit more background on SARMs because that does kind of also touch on it. Um, SARMs are new. SARMs are like the new kid on the block. Uh, they only came about in about 1998. So we're talking 20 years ago um, that they were in like the laboratory. Uh, early 2000s, we start to see them trickle into the kind of underground bodybuilding world uh, 2000, by 2002 or so. Yeah. Um, and so they interact directly with an individual's androgen receptors, um, just as testosterone and other anabolic steroids do but they are believed to have less androgenic effects. So the reason why SARMs are called selective androgen receptor modulators is because um, the whole goal of the SARM was to completely disassociate the androgenic affinity from the anabolic affinity of testosterone. Mm. So hopefully, kind of, again, maybe just a little bit of primer before I kind of go down the route here, is that anabolic androgenic steroids have both an anabolic component and an androgenic component. SARMs, the whole kind of goal of them from the pharmaceutical industry was to create a compound that had completely isolated and disassociated an androgenic compound from an anabolic compound. So they were trying to create this 100% pure anabolic compound. That's impossible. (laughs) First and foremost, you can't actually do that um, because it loses its function altogether. It's like you can't have a peanut butter and jam sandwich without having peanut butter. Yeah. It, it just does not work. You just have a jam sandwich then. And for some people that really want a peanut butter and jam sandwich, guess what? You're not going to have your cravings um, satiated. So with with SARMs, you have these, these drug companies in the early 2000s creating and trying to create them. But there was a lot of failure because, you, like I said, you can't actually create this androgen pure compound. Not only that, but SARMs weren't created for bodybuilding. It's as hard as that is for our world to believe they were created for a clinical population. And one of the big goals of the, the SARM was actually not to have an injection um, uh, methodology to, to get it into the body. It was to have an oral. Yeah. So they wanted to create this oral compound that only would have to be taken once a day um, because it's more friendly for that clinical user. If we think about like testosterone replacement therapy. Yeah. There are more people that use a cream um, than they would want to use an injection. Yeah. So SARMs were created for this this population. Um, however, we all know um, if you're kind of well versed in the steroid world that oral steroids have an effect on your liver. Mm-hmm. So what people started to see with these what they're called like the first generation SARMs is that they shared the same kind of side effect profile as your your oral anabolic androgenic steroids. So you had the depression of um, HDL cholesterol. You had the rise in liver enzymes. You had liver stress. Um, so you were seeing the same side effects as, as anabolic androgenic steroids. So they didn't actually make it out of clinical trials because they were hurting people. They were harming people. Um, and so then, uh, like, I mean, 2006, 7-ish, you start to see second-generation SARMs. The first-generation SARMs, Think of it as the pharmaceutical companies like threw them in a garbage can and then bodybuilders came along and took them out of the garbage can <laughs> and they like went dumpster diving and then they tried to sell them to retail. Yeah. Oh man. 
Yeah. So you're now having this kind of mythical compound <laughs> that people are kind of saying, oh, this is the perfect thing that actually was somebody else's trash um, because it did not work and it was harming people. I mean, some of the early studies, even on muscle mass, it was like, yeah, you could get a little bit of, of gains, such a small percentage when compared to an oral anabolic steroid, and you had way more side effects. So sure, on the surface, you can put this claim that it works, but not really. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that peanut butter and jam example, um, you're still having a, a jam sandwich, so you're still getting that, that jam, you're, you're still eating a sandwich, it's just not actually what you want. Yeah. Um, it's just not as good, it's not having the same, same uh, properties or ability. Um, so when we start to go into the, the second generation science, I mean, it's the same thing that happened. Companies were trying to create so this utopian drug. They're trying to still create this, this pure anabolic drug. Um, and they fail. So more SARMs get thrown into waste buckets. Now, it doesn't mean that a SARM gets completely kind of uh, thrown away by a pharmaceutical company. They often go back to the drawing board. They take that same scaffolding and they try to manipulate it just a little bit, which is what we see with something like Osterin, is that Osterin wasn't working like they wanted it to, so they tried to manipulate it a little bit um, to try to create a better compound so they could get it to pharmaceutical trials so they can then the, the pharmaceutical company can then go start making money yeah unfortunately bodybuilders um or the bodybuilding world i should say uh doesn't always do their homework and they didn't actually realize that this was going on so you start to see these companies that are getting um these kind of very blanket truth claims associated to these drugs they try to start selling them as this like new exotic animal that is going to create this absolute amazing gains. And they're not recognizing the fact that there is a lot of issues with them and that they might not even work. Yeah. Um, wow. So yeah. So SARMs, SARMs for me, it's, it's such an interesting, interesting topic because I feel that we really, I mean, realistically anabolic androgenic steroids, the reason why people take them is they work. Yeah. The, like I, I'll, I mean, there is a very, very, very famous. Um, he's a old, uh, he's a strongman, uh, very professional, uh, kind of uh, figure in the strongman iron sport world. Uh, he's uh, Dr. Terry Todd, down at the University of Texas uh, in Austin, and I, I'll never forget this this quote he said. He said it back in like the early, let's say the early eighties, um, and he's adamant anti drug. But he said the reason why athletes take steroids is very simple. They work. That's it. Yeah. Well, so why are we trying to not, well, you know what I mean? Like, why are we now trying to say that they don't work and that SARMs are better? Why are we trying to tell people that SARMs do work when we know that there's literature that suggests that they don't? Because people are dumb and they can't critically think. People aren't doing their homework. They're not thinking about the, the reason why an anabolic androgenic steroid works is because it's both an anabolic and it's an androgenic compound. Um, why wouldn't a SARM work? Well, because we're trying to create something that's impossible. Yeah. Um, and I don't want people to, because I, I know I've written articles on this before and people come back to me going like, you are so wrong. Like they do work. And I'm like, show me the literature, please show me the literature. I'm not going to say, like I said, it's not that they don't work. They just don't work the way that you suspect them to work. Because if they did, they would be out on the shelves um, in pharmacies. They would be being used in clinical work. They are not. There are some SARMs um, that are still in clinical trial. Um, they are not 
they are not well known for prescriptions yet because we're still trying to figure out if they're going to work for the therapeutic populations. Um, and it will probably be quite some time before uh, the pharmaceutical world perfects what they believe is going to be a potentially positive um, non-steroidal sign. But at the end of the day, they're not what people think they are. Yeah, it's right down to that, you know, people, people wanting, <laughs> women wanting balanced hormones. Sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, um, just even thinking, like, are they are they as effective? Well, fuck, anything that's made in the black market is going to have this air of um, of caution that needs to be attached to it. People aren't going to be able to get signs from a pharmaceutical company. Yeah. Um, no matter if you think that your bottle has this cute little hologram on it, they're not being sold at pharmaceutical companies yet. Um, pharmaceutical grades are still in clinical trials, so you're not going to be able to get your hand on them. Um, most products out there are going to have some type of impurity and it could be a very, very large percentage of an impurity. So why would you want to put that into your body? Yeah. And again, that's that, um, you know, not doing your homework, that mentality of wanting, you know, just wanting whatever, you know, whatever it takes and wanting the, mm -hmm. the muscle mass, the gains. And I think maybe, you know, when they find it, you know, in a you know, retail location, you know, there's not that thing that they have to go, you know, find some, you know, steroids, like whoever, you know, find someone to buy steroids off of that whole, you know, stigma around it. And they're like, well, I could just buy it in a store for 40 bucks and uh, mm -hmm. it should, should work about the same. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Exactly. Have and like, clue. yeah, they don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and that's, cause I've always looked at my, you know, and a lot of people ask my husband too, like, what are your thoughts on that? And he's just like, no. <laughs> No, yeah. you, that's you don't you don't want to mess with it. But I mean, at the same time, there's just so much. It's kind of a, um, you know, it it's out here and you see it. But yeah, there's just not enough information on it. And not enough people are educated on it and what the, the risks are too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know. And it's and it's funny because it's one of those compounds. It's like we still don't know the risks because they're still so new. Yeah. So. That's the other big thing is like, cause I do listen to, I do keep my eye on the pulse of the industry and I do listen to like what other people are, like the, the drug gurus are saying about them. And I just go like, no, but guys, you forgot the number one thing. These are, these are babies. These are the new kids on the block. Mm. It's like you trying to create an opinion on somebody you just met. Yeah. We can create our first kind of, um, uh, an idea of maybe a little bit of their personality, but you don't know until you actually start to get to know them and see how they interact with a wide range of individuals. SARMs are the same way. It's, there's just so much involved. And um, I mean, a lot of times people say to me, like, well, do you think SARMs are safer for women? And I'm like, no, they're not safe for anybody. <laughs> not at this point. Um, but these people, because they think that, like, androgens are associated with more negative, it's like... Um, side effects and again quotation there on side effects because they're actually just effects but um people think then that a SARM would be this perfect utopian drug for a female but yeah. i mean that's cute um great <laughs> that you think that uh, a lot of SARMs especially when they're black market um and you're getting them from like a research chemical site uh they're probably not actually SARMs or they are but they're like SARMs plus evil or they're SARMs plus Winchrol um because they yeah. want to be able to actually create a SARM that works yeah. Uh, and there are actually, there is studies on this. Um, there was a group of researchers that actually tested underground SARMs um, to try to see, like, what the pharmaceutical, like, did it have the pharmaceutical grade that the, that the drug actually claimed it had? 
And the, the findings were that these products were more like a DIY disaster, that they were just like, they were this, that, and everything else, that they had very little bit about the actual substance. They had a bunch of other shit in there, fillers on top of other drugs. So like, why, why would you, why would you do that to yourself? That's just yeah. silly. Yeah. You're just going to cesspool of junk in yeah. the system that's just going to wreak havoc in it. Ugh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is, yeah. Well, that's a lot of clarification on that topic. So I really hope people are going to make more of an informed decision <laughs> if they've ever questioned using that before. And, you know, I do have a couple, um, before we wrap this up, I have a couple of mm -hmm. questions here. Mm -hmm. um, poked around with uh, my audience so we've got one question does it matter Victoria if someone breaks up their cardio doing half fasted or half fed um <laughs> you guys are going to hate my answer for this it comes down to the individual um because ultimately it really does come down to the individual. Um, I mean, the physiological studies um, are very different from the old school mentality of bodybuilding. So uh, a lot of the research that has been done by exercise physiologists, um, contemporary ones, and more recent studies do say that you don't even have to do it fasted to elicit fat loss. But there are other factors there that have to be um, thought of as to like what the person say um, affinity for like their blood glucose levels throughout the day. What is their affinity for gluconeogenesis and actual like lipid oxidation? Um, you know what I mean? So there, there's just, there's a lot there. Uh, one of the things I say to people, um, because it's not that I'm anti, like, well, I'm a researcher for, for, for sake, but people go like, you're so anti exercise physiology. I'm like, no, they're like my buddies. I just like to make them think. Um, <laughs> If you've got an individual that's going to be more likely to do cardio if they do it in a fasted state because they just roll out of bed and do it, um, yeah, guess what? Fasted cardio is going to be a lot more effective for them because they're actually doing it. Yeah. So let's think about that. Like I said, like the common sense stuff. Um, some people do it as a as a way of meditation. Um, so you probably want to do that first thing in the morning to set yourself for a positive day. In terms of the physiological functions, it does come down to the individual. Um, just like it matters what type of cardio you're doing. Um, there are some people that, uh, in our industry, especially the, the people that think that they are the leaders, think that you cannot do, say, intervals uh, when you're fasted. Well, no, it comes down to the individual. What's their goal? If their goal is to, say, lose muscle, if their goal is to uh, work with their high levels of, say, hyperinsulinia, their female PCOS, you're going to have to do a different regime for cardio you're going to have to put it under different um, different settings in terms of like if you're going to do it pre-workout, post-workout, fasted, before bed and not eat. Like there's so many different ways you can manipulate it um, and also like the modality of it. So are you doing an interval? What is your interval length? Because an interval doesn't just mean like one minute on, one minute off. You can do short bursts. You can do it long. You can do um, lactic threshold training. There is just so much that can actually go into it. Um, but then we also have to apply it to somebody's actual training program. Uh, what did they do yesterday? What are they doing tomorrow? What's their diet today? What's their diet yesterday? What's their diet tomorrow kind of idea? As well as their life. If they're working and they have to be at work at 5 a.m., I'm sorry, but sleep is way more important than fasted cardio for fat loss. Yeah. So if you have to roll out of bed at 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning just to do it, go back to fucking bed and sleep. That's going to help you way more than going and doing fasted cardio because you're already fucking with your circadian rhythms to get out of bed at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. 
um, our body's bodies have a natural kind of high and low cortisol response throughout the day, which is part of our circadian rhythms. Um, and I think that is a big part of kind of this whole facet cardio controversy that people forget. Um, because often when we think of fasted cardio, it's people kind of getting up ridiculously early, disrupting their sleep patterns to be able to do cardio, and then wonder why they've got jacked up cortisol. Yeah. Um, there's a lot There's a lot more to it. So for me as a professional that uh, does work with like a wide range of individuals and elite competitors, um, I truly do believe that, no, you, you got to do what works for you. you got to do what works for your goal. Um, and that performance does not equal physique. So if somebody is trying to, say, sprint or performance, you probably are going to want to fuel your body to do so. If somebody's trying to sprint to change their physique, that's going to be a different protocol in place, whether that's doing it um, with very minimal substrate or no, or at different times of the day, you have to optimize your own training environment. Yeah. Hmm. And see, for like myself, like I, I do fasted cardio in the morning just because... I like getting up in the morning and it sets the tone and it's, it is, it's my meditation time. My, my brain is doing something mundane and it goes off. I have great thoughts mm -hmm. and ideas and, you know, yeah. it, it sets the tone and it's great. But I mean, I, I miss it and I need to yeah. sleep. I sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I did it for years. I did fasted morning cardio for years. Um, and now I'm like, I'm going to go take my dog for a walk. That works for me. Yeah. Um, and that is aligned with my goals. I work really well. Um, my, my best for me personally research time in the morning is usually between five and 7am. Mm -hmm. So if my, my goal is my, my, my research. So if I'm going to do cardio or, you know, my goal, which is research, I'm going to do my research. My cardio comes at a different time of the day, depending on what my training is, depending on how my body's feeling, depending on what my goals are. Um, if my goals are to, say, change my body composition more rapidly, I might realign my my research time and, and modify it a bit. So it really does come down to, like, like your own your own preference as well. Okay. And that's where, for me as a coach, I have to work with that individual. Um, one of the examples I, I've used in the past when I do seminars is that um, let's just say you have a, a, a bikini competitor who is a single working mom with two kids under 10. She does not live, uh, or she does not have cardio within her house or the ability to do it in her house. She actually has to go to her gym. Yeah. How the fuck is she going to do morning cardio without feeling ridiculously stressed? Yeah. Or potentially uh, diminishing her relationship she has with her kids. Mm -hmm. And as a coach, if you're telling her that, no, this is what you have to do for fat loss, what is that going to do to our psychological state? Yeah. Like, you've just killed the duck before it even had a chance to, like, you get out of the egg. <laughs> so, yeah, so it does. You've got to look at that individual. You have to look at the context of their life. You have to look at their physiology and, and go from there because it is not as simple as just programming from what, like, the, the research says or from what the bro say. It really is this, this multifactorial machine that we have to take a look at. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think, yeah, and especially for people too, like for yourself even saying, you know, to adjust everything and being really self-aware of that and recognizing, okay, hey, that this, this works for me. This doesn't work for me. You know, is this, mm -hmm. am I getting stressed out from this? Like, how do I yeah. feel? You know, how yeah, does oh, this for sure. feel, you know? 
Yeah, like, like I've had competitors, like very elite competitors that have come to me and they've um, had to say go from one show to another show relatively quickly because they, they're quite up there. I don't like the list names, but they are, they're up there. So they have to compete um, at, at the big shows. But uh, that uh, they've done morning cardio every morning for years and they're like, my body's just not, like my body just won't go. And I'm like, well, you're getting like four hours of fucking sleep. I'm like, let's just not change how long you're doing cardio. Uh, maybe manipulate it here and there in terms of the actual modality and the times as we need to. But just for kind of our first, our first line kind of, um, uh, let's say, method is going to be simply to stop doing morning fasted. Let yourself sleep in and maybe get six hours of sleep and disperse that cardio at different times throughout the day or at two different times throughout the day, or maybe put it on a different day. So it's called the accumulated week, where instead of looking at how much cardio you do each day, you look at how much you're doing total in a week and assess that number instead um, and see what happens. And of course, they're sleeping, they're having better recovery, their cortisol response is changing, and they start dropping fat rapidly. Yeah. Just from something so simple, but it goes against what the kind of the, the normative ideas of fasted cardio or fat loss is within our industry. Yeah. Hmm. That, uh, yeah, I think I definitely know who asked that one. So I think uh, she'll be happy with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Uh, excellent, perfect. excellent. Um, what is the, and uh, lastly, in your opinion, so this is another audience question. What is the best for fat loss while preserving muscle? Sleep. <laughs> um, I, I joke, but honestly, people go like, "What's the best supplement?" I'm like, "Sleep." What's the best exercise? Sleep. I don't think we put enough emphasis on sleep. Um, I truly, truly don't think that we really think about that when we're programming people's diets or when we're programming um, cardio or training programs or whatever. Um, sleep is so, so, so important, not only for our like our just our hormone regulation to our thyroid function. It really is for the entire regulation of the body and of life. Um, and so when we, when we train often, we, we actually are working counterproductive to sleep. Um, how many bodybuilders do you know? And do I know that don't sleep when they're three weeks out from a contest? Yeah. Right. Cause yeah. they're so fucking hungry. Um, <laughs> your body won't sleep when it's hungry. Yeah. Um, just like people that will go and they'll be like, Oh man, I've got three hours of cardio day. I got to do an hour of cardio right before bed. And then they can't sleep. Mm-hmm. Well, because you're working against your, your physiological processes of your circadian rhythms. Um, this week with the, or this last week, I guess, with the eclipse, um, there was a lot of individuals that I work with that were complaining about sleep disruptions, which is relatively common when you have some type of lunar or um, alteration to the actual circadian rhythms and processes. Um, so it's, it's funny because people don't recognize, I think, that there are just sleep is so important, number one, for fat loss. Number two, it's affected by a lot of very mundane things, um, from scattered thoughts to grumbling stomachs to yeah. external factors like things you can't even control, like an eclipse. Yeah. <laughs> um, so sleep, though, really, really, really is important. So for me, um, rehabbing your sleep and your sleep patterns uh, through making sure you have a set schedule for sleep, making sure you're getting adequate rest for your own body. This is going to vary from person to person, but I mean... There was this one research study done last year. It said that the optimal level of sleep was 10 hours a night with two hours of naps. 
And I was like, huh. ain't, I ain't got time for that shit. Are you kidding me? Um, but that's the funny thing is that probably my body would love it if, it would, if I could actually do that. Yeah. Um, but I can't. It's not functional for my life. But I recognize that there are going to be times that I have to sleep more to recover. And there's going to be times that I have to sleep less when I have deadlines or working towards something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I manage my sleep. Um, the use of certain supplements to help you get to sleep or stay asleep can be very, very effective. But like I said at the very beginning with depression, know what you're taking. Mm. Um, if you're somebody that has uh, believes that they do have some depressive like um, mannerisms, then consult with your doctor before doing something like GABA. Um, or even L-tryptophan or anything like that. Um, there are non-melatonin options, and when people do start to use melatonin, um, remember that melatonin actually is within our chain of command in our bodies. Melatonin uh, has a relationship with progesterone. It has a relationship with um, with cortisol and all of our other sex hormones. So when your bodies uh, are very, very unbalanced in terms of our hate, you know, I hate that word. I just used it, but when your your hormones are scattered. Um, and you take melatonin and you feel like shit, then think of why. If it used to work for you and now you feel like shit, well, maybe that's your hormones telling you something. Um, So recognize that. There's not one thing for everybody, but I do truly think that right now, more than any time in history, we are so controlled by our devices um, that we don't think about the effect of blue light on our sleeping patterns. We are so controlled by our high-paced lifestyle, we don't think about coming down and actually having to recover and relax. And all the amazing, like, even growth factors that happen when you sleep. Um, well, instead of sleep, I'll just say growth hormone. It's like, no, like, let's get it <laughs> naturally. Like, it's something so benign, so simple. Um, and I think that, for me, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about talking about sleep, of all things, is because when you think about a typical bodybuilding program for somebody, they're going into contest prep. Where's sleep in that? Mm-hmm. No, you have three. You have a cute little package of training, cardio, supplements. That's it. Um, we're, we don't think past these other factors. I mean, one of the other things for fat loss, well-preserving muscle, um, I mean, it's just how your programming is set up for your own body. Um, if you are somebody that has to work your ass off to gain every ounce of muscle, um, then your, your other factors from stimulant use to macronutrients has to be facilitated based off of that because as hard as it was for you to gain muscle it's going to be really easy for you to lose it yeah um or for for women i often find that it's really hard for them to gain um sorry to lose fat but relatively easy for some women to gain muscle and i'm like okay well then remember that that you you got to try to think about your factors you have to try to think about your your um, variables and create a program based off of that rather than just these cute blanketed ideas and, and quick fixes and supplements that really are doing absolutely nothing or working against what you're trying to actually accomplish. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it does make the biggest difference. Like myself, you know, I can be a morning person too, and I can be a night owl and just stay up mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. reading or whatever. And when it came down to it, it was like, no, Mindy, you need to get more than five hours of sleep. But it's like, well, but Okay, mm-hmm. and then, you know, train myself to get a, you know, go to bed just a little bit earlier, you know, turn off the phone, you know, and yeah. it does make a huge difference. And, you know, you can you can still work it in there, you know, go to bed a little, you know, 15 minutes, okay, another extra 15 minutes, mm-hmm. get another mm-hmm. extra 15 minutes, train yourself to get, you know, that extra bit of sleep rather than, you know, 
stay up and uh, you know ask yourself, is this serving me? Is this serving yeah. my goals? Oh, you know? absolutely. And it's, it's, it's interesting because there is a ton of research out there that does support why sleep is so important and why proper circadian rhythms are so important. And I get individuals that will come to me and be like, well, I'm just a night owl. And I'm like, no, you have fucked with your cortisol curve so much that you've now believed that you're a night owl, but really you've just reset your body and moved things to a place where they really, it's really not optimal. Um, because we know that our cortisol curve affects everything in our body. And they'll do say, for example, like, um, the Dutch test, which is a dry urinalysis test. Um, and you'll be able to see your uh, cortisol levels throughout the day, as well as your ratio from cortisol to cortisone and a bunch of metabolites in the process. And I'll be able to show them like, look, like, you're actually like you flipped your cortisol curve. So no wonder why you're a night owl. And this doesn't happen overnight. This is usually those staying up here and there and all the like, you know, little bits. And then all of a sudden you're now training at night and now you're staying awake later than you used to. And three years later, you're now, you know, bedtime's two or 3 a.m. and you're sleeping until 10 a.m. Well, let's think about the way that our sun rises and sets. That is a normal circadian rhythm. It changes throughout the year, of course, and on lunar calendars and everything else. But there is a, a natural ebb and flow of our cortisol that we have to listen to as fitness, um, uh, let's say, advisors and as coaches and as medical protect, pro- professionals. Um, because, I mean, if you have, um, if you have an, that individual that is a night owl, we know that their, that their growth factor is not functioning as it should be. We know that their progesterone usually is not functioning as it should be. Um, that their even just their glucose responses aren't. Their neurotransmitter production, their digestive function. So you've now created a body that's got dysregulation and dysfunction. Well, how can you build the perfect body when you've got dysfunction? You can't. You can try to override it as much as possible with drugs, but you're only going to get so far with that. Yeah. And that's going to um, cause even more damage down the road, too. Exactly, exactly. And there's such simple things that people can do. Like you said about your, your phone, exactly. Like, each of us probably, um, I think, especially in the fitness industry because social media is such a big thing, that, you know, you're checking it right before bed. Well, that actually influences not only from the blue light stimulation, but also cognitive stimulation. Yeah. So, when time you put your phone down or, like, um, with, uh, with my, my boyfriend and I, like, we have no phones in the bedroom. It's really simple. Um, because even if your phone turns on in the middle of the night, for some individuals, that blue light is enough to actually wake them up. Yeah. Even if they've got their phone on silence. Well, if you're waking up in the middle of the night, is that really going to create an effective sleep pattern? No. Um, so, I mean, personally, too, for myself, I know that I have to take a step away from my, my work um, about an hour and a half before the time I want to be asleep. So I can't step away from the computer a half an hour before I want to go to bed. I have to do an hour and a half. I'm a very slow person to come down because I think my brain gets up really, really <laughs> high. But that's just me. And I've had to learn that over time. Yeah. Um, so, again, it comes down to that, that whole principle of learning your body, learning the responses, and figuring out systems that work for you. If your coach says to you, I want you to do uh, your cardio before bed, and you're like, I already am not sleeping. And your coach says, I don't care, do it. Well, alarm bells should be ringing mm-hmm. um, because sleep is going to be more important for you than cardio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, always. Sleep, yeah. 
it's there's just so many more benefits. There's just so much more benefits to it, and you know, a lot of people too say, like, "Oh, I'm not losing weight or whatever else." You know, and say, like, mm-hmm. well, "How much are you sleeping?" Oh, four hours. Yeah. So well, then. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and then we try to override it, right? Like the next morning, you're waking up and you're on four hours of sleep, so you're exhausted, so you just pop some stimulants and you're cracked out for the rest of the day. Yeah. Um, and then you keep popping more stimulants to try to keep high. It's it's such a dangerous, dangerous world that we're in, and it's uh, like I mean. Women in particular, I found that um, with progesterone levels, when they're really low, you feel very groggy in the mornings, like incredibly groggy in the mornings. Mm -hmm. So you're popping stimulants and you're drinking way more than like a normative number of cups of coffee in the morning just to try to override your physiological response that's happening rather than taking a step back and being like, fuck, I never used to feel this groggy and tired in the mornings. what's, What's going on with me? And you can get, like I said, the Dutch test is brilliant for actually understanding what your sex hormones are doing and then learning how to how to work with them and get them back into some normal of ebb and flow process. That's pretty cool. I'd be interested just to take a look and get that done just to see what's going on. Oh yeah, it's it's awesome because I'm and I'm not also I'm not endorsing Dutch. I'm not connected to the company in any way. Um, I just have. <laughs> this is not a paid their, advertising. No, 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 not at all. I've just used their tech, their their test, um, a lot in in my practice, and I have found that it is a great, great resource to have because it is so comprehensive, and you can actually do it no matter what you're taking in terms of hormones. A lot of times, blood work gets um, you get you get a very large degree of variance because you're taking hormones on, say, a guy that's on. Um, TRT, and then he goes and gets his blood work done. Well, your your hormones are going to be completely skewed, so you're not going to get um, a good idea of what your body's doing. Whereas with the Dutch, because it's dried urine analysis, um, and it's actually was created for patients on HRT, they you write down like what your dosages are of things, and then they can actually track them in conjunction with what your response is showing to be able to actually help you figure out what your um, body's doing underneath wow. all those hormones. And how those hormones are affecting your sex hormones and your cortisol, um, and uh, I mean even just inflammation levels. Yeah. Oh wow, that's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. It is. It is my. It is one of my go-to's. There's. I do have a couple other like tests that I, depending on the individual that I recommend. But if somebody's really kind of, <sighs> the more fucked up you are, the more that <laughs> I have to use. And I and I do use the Dutch in conjunction. I should say to people with a bunch of either methods um like i mean basic biofeedback methods and stuff like that but part of me like i I opened up with talking about consulting but part of the the job i think of a of a coach is is education and you can't educate unless you have the tools to do so which for me are these these little things whether it's testing or um interviewing the individual and actually learning about their family history learning about their own health history um taking a look at all their testing over time um, you know, it, it is a, it is a very comprehensive in order to actually figure out and help the person, um, get a better grasp on their body. And if you're somebody that you're wanting to learn your body, well, I mean, it's really simple. Like make a timeline of yourself, the timeline of Mindy, for example, mm-hmm. and track yourself. Be like, okay, like, was I a fat kid or was I a skinny kid? When did I get my first period? How was that period? Was it heavy or was it light? When did I start competing? How did that affect my mood, my digestion, my body composition? so on and so forth. Um, let's look at my family history. Is there a family history of depression or heart disease or obesity? And those affect, epigenetics, it affects what our, our 
kind of um, affinity is in our own lives from our family. So you know what I mean? So start to create this kind of personal story because that's going to be the best tool that you have to create the body of your dreams. Hmm. Noted. (laughs) Yes. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Victoria, for everything. Thank you for having me. I I love, love any opportunity I have to try to get that. Like I said, the good, the good word out there. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. The good word, the good fight. And I really hope this is going to bring a lot of takeaways for a lot of my listeners. And yeah, you've been an absolute wealth of knowledge and an absolute pleasure to speak to Victoria. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Becoming Unfuckwithable. If you believe you're unfuckwithable, go ahead and share this podcast.